When we left our story, Julius Caesar had just paid two visits to Britain, but had left with very little to prove for his adventure. And indeed, Caesar's adventures now took him east to Rome, where he seized power uh, until he paid a visit to the Senate on the Ides of March. Meanwhile, Britannia remained stubbornly independent, the island on the edge of the world. But whilst Julius Caesar had turned his attention to Rome, Rome hadn't forgotten about Britain. You know, just like Caesar, the idea of conquering the furthest known part of the Western world was, was too big an ego trip for the empire's leaders to ignore, both those aspiring to make a name for themselves and those who wanted to reinforce and cement their positions of authority. And so it was that nearly 100 years later, the Romans returned. The Roman Emperor Caligula had been murdered along with most of his family, leaving his scholarly uncle Claudius on the throne. And being a scholar in a military empire was not a source of strength. But if he achieved a military history and extended Rome's frontiers, well, that changed everything for him, didn't it? And so his eyes settled on the island on the edge of the world. In AD 43, he set out to achieve what Caesar had failed to do to conquer Britannia. Now, the Britannia of that first century AD wasn't a unified country, nor was it even split into its modern nations of you know, England, Wales, Scotland. It was a patchwork of 27 tribes who, who spoke a common Britonic language, I guess, with, you know, with, with uh, regional variations. For instance, there were the Cantiarchi uh, in modern-day Kent. The Catovalloni and the Trinovantes, who we've met before, were to the north of the Thames. In the West Midlands and running up through sort of Shropshire and Cheshire were the Cornovi, or Cornovi, uh, with their capital at the Rekin near modern-day Telford. Up in Yorkshire and Lancashire were the powerful, another powerful tribe, the Brigantes. In modern-day Wales, there were four tribes, including the uh, Siluri and the, uh, the Ordovices. And in the far north, modern-day Scotland, uh, the Roman writer Tacitus recorded eight tribes, the most northerly of which with the Caledonae. And over East Anglia were the Iceni, who we're going to hear a lot more about in this story. The Roman invasion force under Aulus Plautius consisted of four legions, about 20,000 men, and they landed on two fronts, uh, in Kent in the east and Chichester, further round in Sussex on the south coast of England. Now, once more, it was the Catevalloni who organised British resistance in the south of Britain. Under their joint kings, uh, Togadunus and Caractacus, they formed up on the west bank of the River Medway in Kent. And the battle lasted two whole days until a Roman cavalry unit under a future emperor, Vespasian, managed to turn the flank of the defenders. The British fell back and they tried to forestall the Roman advance at the River Thames, but once more the invaders propelled. And in the ensuing battle, uh, Togadunus uh, was killed. Crossing the Thames, the Romans advanced on the Catavalloni's capital at modern-day Colchester. And there, they paused, waiting for Emperor Claudius to arrive in Britain. Claudius, with reinforcements, duly arrived, complete with war elephants, and proceeded to attack the deserted capital. Not surprisingly, seeing as there was no opposition, Claudius the scholar achieved a military victory, and after a whole two weeks in Britain, he returned to Rome a conquering hero leaving his generals to get on with the hard work of actually conquering the island and defeating Caractacus, who, uh, rather than defending Colchester, had retreated west and found sanctuary with the Siluri uh, tribe in what is now South Wales. 
While some tribes, like the uh, the Dora Tigres uh, in modern-day Dorset and, and uh, Somerset, put up a fierce resistance, Vespasian was once more in action down there, others became client states by forming treaties like the Brigantes, the Cornovi and the Iceni. And thus, within four years, the Romans had extended their control uh, through, up through Britain to a line roughly running from Exeter to Lincoln. And they built a road connecting those two garrisons and sort of demarcating the boundary. It was called the Foss Way, and it still exists today. Caractacus continued to be a thorn in the, side, in Romans, in the Romans' side until an all-out assault and almost annihilation of the Solores' neighbours and allies, the Cordovites, who lived in modern-day Powys in sort of mid-Wales. Caractacus now fled to the northern tribe, the Brigantes. But if you remember, they were a client tribe of Rome and their queen, uh, Cartimandua, uh, turned him over to the Romans. Taken in chains to Rome, he successfully pleaded for his life with Emperor, with Emperor Claudius. And he lived out the rest of his days in the, Rome, in the imperial capital. Meanwhile, back in Britannia, with Caractacus out of the way, the new Roman uh, governor, uh, Paulinus, turned his attention to the other centre of resistance, the Druids. Remember, Caesar had problems with the Druids a hundred years before. And in 61 AD, he advanced north with two out of his four legions that he had in Britain to their stronghold and sacred island of Anglesey off the northwest coast of Wales. And there, he massacred the Druids before cutting down all their sacred groves or wood, woodlands. And the destruction he wrought on Anglesey was complete. The Druids were never going to be a major influence in Britain again. And it was at this moment of victory for Paulinus that 300 miles away across the island that the most serious challenge to Roman rule now occurred. The Iceni tribe in modern day, the modern-day county of Norfolk in East Anglia had been a client kingdom of the Romans. In other words, they'd signed a peace treaty rather than being conquered. But when their king died, the Romans decided to take over the Iceni lands. And when the king's widow complained, she was whipped and her daughters were both raped. The locals, the Iceni, were horrified. And more than that, they were bent on revenge. But not as hell-bound and bent on revenge as the widowed queen, Boudicca. Gathering a huge army, not just of the Iceni, but of neighbouring tribes, they fell upon the Roman capital at modern-day Colchester. The Roman citizens in this unfortified town didn't know what the hell hit them, and they were massacred, almost to a man and woman. The Roman legion in Lincoln, one of the ones that Paulinus had left behind, rapidly head south to teach the Britons a lesson, and they were cut to shreds. Now Boudicca turned her attention on the Roman trading port on the River Thames, Londinium. Unlike Colchester, they were not, uh, the Romans hadn't been built, weren't building on a, a previous site. Londinium was a Roman invention. And from its very start, it was, and it still is, all about trade. Consequently, there was no garrison to defend its civilian population. Uh, Paulinus raced down Watling Street from North Wales with his cavalry. He arrived in Londinium and he realised, quite frankly, that, he, that the he was hopelessly outnumbered. And he told the inhabitants that basically if they couldn't ride with him back north, they were on their own. And then he rode back to gather his legions and to hurry them down as fast as they possibly could on foot from North Wales. His passing shot was to order the second legion, who were based in Gloucester in the West Country, to march to the rescue of London. 
The commander of the Second Legion in Gloucester looked at the situation. This is right. Uh, his commander had just abandoned Londinium. The Legion in Lincoln had just been cut to shreds. And now he was being asked to go and take on Boudicca and her ever-growing army of bloodthirsty Brits. So he stayed in Gloucester and Boudicca descended on an undefended Londinium and in an orgy of destruction it's estimated uh, that she killed nearly 30,000 inhabitants, the bulk of whom were actually fellow Britons who had thrown in their lot with the invaders. The destruction of London was so great that recent archaeological ex excavations have shown that there's actually a layer of ash in the soil of ancient London from Boudicca's visit. Everything was burnt down. Turning north, she meted out the same treatment on the settlement of Verulanium, uh, modern-day St Albans. Tacitus, uh, the Roman writer, claimed that during her uprising, Boudicca massacred, massacred sorry, somewhere between 70 and 80,000 people. And, you know, when you think about it, apart from the legion from Lincoln, that meant all, most of these were civilians. And as I mentioned just now, most of them were actually Britons that she murdered. And now for the final showdown. She marched her horde, ironically, up the Roman road of Watling Street to meet the two legions under Paulinus returning from their Druid massacring uh, campaign on Anglesey. And somewhere in the Midlands uh, of England, the two armies met. The exact site of the battle has never been identified. Many believe it's in sort of in the vicinity of near Atherston in Warwickshire, or roughly where Watling Street and the Foss Way cross in Leicestershire. Anyway, whilst outnumbered eight to one, the Romans were disciplined and they were experienced warriors and that was to prove decisive in the battle. And as the Romans pushed forward their advance in their tight formations, the British started to retreat. Unfortunately, they had traveled uh, to battle with all their families who'd positioned their carts at the rear to watch the spectacle of the envisaged Roman destruction. So now the fleeing British soldiers were trapped by their own wagons and what ensued was an absolute bloodbath. Roman historian Tacitus estimated that the British lost 80,000 people at uh, the battle. Whatever the actual numbers, the destruction was such that the Romans never again faced an uprising in Britain on this scale. Legend has it that Boudicca and her daughters took poison rather than be captured. Within a decade, the Romans had established a giant fort at Chester and most of Britain south of the Mersey and Humber were under their control. The high point of the Roman conquest was actually achieved in AD 83, just 40 years after the invasion, when they won a significant victory in the very far north of Britain against the Caledoni in the region of uh, near modern day Inverness or Aberdeenshire. Once again, it was the Roman historian Tacitus who wrote that the two armies consisted of about 15,000 each and, and that the northern Britons lost nearly 10,000 in that battle. It was now just a matter of time before the northern highlands were incorporated into the empire. But time was not on the conqueror's side. Far to the east, the emperor was waging a war with the, uh, the Dacians in central eastern Europe and he needed as many troops for that campaign as he, uh, as, uh, as, as, as he could muster. And so the legions were withdrawn, leaving the very north of Britain free, or certainly free of any direct Roman control. By the time that the Emperor Hadrian, the second emperor to pay a visit to Britain, paid a visit in AD 122, the capital of the province had been moved from Colchester to Londinium, modern-day London. Whilst in the north, the, the unconquered tribes were sort of flexing their muscles and being troublesome. So in response, he ordered that a, 
a 75 mile wall would be built between Bowness on Solway and the coast near Newcastle, or modern day Newcastle, to keep the province secure, Hadrian's Wall. And we tend to think of that as, you know, there was a Britain and civilised Roman Empire to the south of the wall and barbarians to the north. Yet, I think it's wrong to see Britain as divided between the, the conquered south and the independent north. You know, the border actually moved around a lot over the years. Just, just 20 years after Hadrian had built his wall, his successor, Antoninus Pius, conducted a military campaign far into modern day Scotland. And he constructed a new wall 100 miles north of Hadrian's Wall, the Antonine Wall. Unlike Hadrian's Wall, uh, which was built of stone and was about 10 feet thick, uh, this wall was more of an earth embankment with wooden palisade along the top. Nevertheless, you know, it had just extended the Roman Empire 100 miles to a line between Firth of Clyde and the Firth of Forth, sort of modern day line between Glasgow and Edinburgh in modern day Scotland. The war was abandoned uh, within a generation, but then in 208 to 11 AD, African-born Roman Emperor Septimius Severus conducted the last major Roman campaign north of Hadrian's Wall. And again, you know, he would uh, he went far up into into the the, the the Scottish Highlands. But before he could capitalise on his victories, he died in the northern city of Aboracum, or modern-day York. Archaeological evidence has found hordes of Roman silver coins well into modern-day Scotland, which really indicates that, you know, there was a lot of trade existing between the two sides of the wall. And as I say, not fair to say civilization one side, barbarians the other. We all know about the British Empire, but in this period of history, Britain was part of somebody else's empire. What did that really mean for Britain? We tend to view empires from the 19th century perspective, with indigenous peoples wiped out or marginalised and migrants from the mother country grabbing all the land available. But the Roman Empire, at least in Britain, was not about that. The Roman population, soldiers, administrators, their families, retainers, hangers-on, probably never numbered much more than 125,000 in a population of approximately 3 million. And they tended to be found in the urban centres like Londinium and Aboracum, York. Most of the population continued to live as they'd always done before AD 43 and Claudius had arrived, you know, back on their old tribal lands. And they were ruled over nominally by the old tribal elites. You know, the elites started to Romanize. They started building villas in the countryside. They started worshipping Roman gods, even speaking the language of the empire, Latin. But, you know, for Joe Average, they still farmed the land and lived in huts just like they always had done. You know, in many respects, the Roman Empire in Britain, you know, reminds me a little bit of, I think, how the later, Rome, uh, the later British Empire existed in India. You know, it was a country ruled by a foreign elite with the support of local elites and quite frankly, a large part of the population almost untouched by it in their everyday lives. The two biggest direct impacts were the establishment of towns, that many of which continue to this day. You know, some were centres of Roman power, such as York and London. Others had a, a military presence, such as Chester and Gloucester and Cirencester. And others were urbanised tribal capitals, such as Silchester and uh, Rockster in Shropshire, where the, uh, the Corn Ivy had moved their capital from the Rekin. To, to Roxeter. To this day, you can glimpse the remains of Roman Britain, whether it's in the old city wall in London, near the Tower of London, the theatre at St Albans, or the baths in, well, Bath, 
or whether it's in the road layouts that still form the plans of some of the settlements in Britain. The road layout in the centre of Chester, for instance, still follows the Roman grid pattern that was established 2,000 years ago, all the roads coming together where the commander's palace once stood. The other visible impact, although maybe less recognised, is the road system that they left behind. You know, the modern-day A2 from Dover to London and the A5 from London to the northwest fundamentally follows Roman Watling Street. The Ermine Road from London to York still forms the bulk of the route that is the A1 today. And you can still follow the Foss Way, as I said before, between Lincoln and Exeter via the Roman settlements of Leicester, Cirencester, Bath, Ilminster. You can follow that journey. But for all of this, the Roman influence in Britain was in many respects cosmetic. The island remained agricultural. There's little evidence that there was major land clearances for agriculture during, uh, during the Roman period. So in other words, agricultural production was no greater than it had been before Britain, Britain became a Roman province. And interesting, that inability to increase fruit production sort of put a cap on population growth. In the 200 years after Severus, Septimius Severus dying in Eboricum and the legions leaving Britain, the population rose by just a fifth to 3.6 million. Urbanisation was already in decline before the end of the empire. And it's interesting that just how quickly, of course, many of those urban centres were abandoned uh, in the coming centuries. Now, Whilst urban living started to decline during the Roman Empire, there was a burst of villa building in the countryside. So maybe our desire to live in the countryside in Britain has been around a lot longer than we like to think. Possibly the biggest impact the Romans had in Britain actually was the establishment of London. The city, which had started from scratch and had to be rebuilt after Boudicca's visit, grew to become the home of over 60,000 people. It became the preeminent trading centre, bar none, in Britannia. And quite frankly, it's never relinquished that status in the ensuing 2000 years. The end of the Roman Empire in Britain was in many respects, a, a sort of like a death by a thousand cuts. Individual events that sort of led to the inevitable end. It's just probably it didn't feel inevitable at the time until it happened, of course. From the mid-3rd century, less than 50 years after Septimius Severus had been marching deep into Scotland, the province started to experience growing pirate attacks along its coastlines. The Scotty tribe, not from Scotland, but from Ireland, the Scotty tribe ranged along the western shoreline from Cumbria right down to the southwest of England and all of Wales. Meanwhile, all along the North Sea and the English Channel coastlines, Saxon pirates from northern Germany, attack ships and settlements. Forts were actually built on the coastline in, in, the, in the southeast uh, to protect this Saxon shore. And then in 367 AD, Britain was subject to a combined, a massive combined attack by the, the Picts, who were the, the sort of the group who were coalescing in Scotland around the Caledonia, the Picts, uh, the Irish pirates and the Saxons all acting in concert, two lots of pirates attacking on the coast and the Picts storming through Hadrian's Wall. The Roman commanders were killed in battle and the province was overrun by these marauders. Uh, it was around this time that the Milden Hall at Silver Dinner Service was buried for safety uh, and never recovered in what's now East Anglia. Uh, eventually it was unearthed in an archaeological dig and you can see that in the British Museum in London. 
And really now, from 367, things started to unravel swiftly in Britain. A series of local military commanders attempted to set themselves up as rival emperors in the empire. Uh, the Roman commander Magnus Maximus, uh, who was a commanding a garrison in Carnarfon in North Wales, or what's now Carnarfon in North Wales, declared himself emperor of Rome in 383 AD, and he established a power base in Britain, Gaul, and Iberia. Yeah, and Maximus obviously had to fight for his new attempt to become emperor of Rome, so he pulled troops out of Britain to fight on the continent in Gaul. Um, and once denuded of its defences, Britain came under increased pirate and Pictish attack. I mean, they couldn't miss a golden opportunity like that. Maximi, uh, Maximum was defeated five years later, but the, the depleted defences of Britannia were never really reinforced. And then, of course, Roma had their own problems as the motherland was attacked by the Visigoth barbarians under their leader, Alaric. And far off Britain was expendable, so they pulled as many troops out as they possibly could to defend the very centre of the empire. Feeling neglected, the remaining troops in Britain mutinied in 406 AD, and a year later, 407, under their latest commander turned emperor Constantine, they crossed to Gaul again. He took all his troops with him where he was defeated. And that was Britain's garrison, used up. Naked and facing increased attacks from across the wall, across the seas, the leading citizens in Britain appealed to the Roman Emperor for assistance. And in 410, the Roman Emperor, Honorius, sent them a simple message. Quote, the cantons should take steps to defend themselves. So bizarrely, without demanding freedom or rising in rebellion, Britain was de facto independent and no longer part of the Roman Empire. Or more precisely, Britain had been left to fend for herself in the face of these increasingly violent attacks. A little while ago, we talked about the, the influence that Roman, the Roman Empire had on Britain. And I've mentioned the towns and the roads and the ruins that you can still see on visits and the treasures housed in Britain's museums. People talk about things like the central heating systems. You, know, you can actually see one in St Albans. The Romans had central heating in Britain, and that was never going to return to Britain until Victorian times, nearly 2,000 years later, or 1,500 years later. Uh, the public baths in Bath, Latin. Winston Churchill, in his Histories of the English-Speaking People, uh, waxed lyrical about the peace and prosperity that Britain enjoyed for 300 years. But there's this thing in the tale. That peace was delivered by foreign troops. Most Britons were not allowed to carry arms, uh, and with the memory of Boudicca, who can blame the Romans for that? And the ones who had been recruited to the Roman army were either dead or in some distant corner of the empire. Maybe the real impact of the Roman Empire was to turn the warlike people who'd fought alongside Caraticus and Boudicca into lambs trying to fend off wolves. How could they possibly cope now? What would happen next? Well, join me next time to discover what does happen next. King Arthur, fact or fiction? The arrival of the Anglo-Saxons in England and Britain descending into the Dark Age. See you next time.